Hello and welcome again to another segment of Sister Love. This is Retta Rainbow and I'm here with my guest, Dr. Shante Albert. Uh, we are friends, sisters, and colleagues in the field of higher education. Uh, we met at one of our Midwestern institutions. She currently serves, and I can tell you I have borne witness, she does both health intervention, prevention, and outreach and advocacy intersecting the, the identity of wellness and every identity you can think of. So whether it's access, whether it's ability, whether it's race, ethnicity, spirituality, sexuality, financial, if you think about the eight dimensions of wellness, and I'll have her talk a little bit about that to give you a base foundation, the work that she's done from anything from weight to nutrition, to sexuality, to smoking cessation, um, to race and identity intersecting well-being and how that plays on each other. She has led teams in different regions. Um, she has led grants, outreach, both in her specific areas, but then also throughout different campus life on multiple institutions. And so today is part one of a series where we're going to talk about what it means to protect, honor, and respect Black women. Today's focus is going to be on Black women in leadership or leadership roles or opportunities. And we're going to talk about the myths and the realities of our advancement, of our voice in different spaces, as well as what do we need right now and what are we willing to do for ourselves to get there. Um, part of the intro to this conversation is the fact that if we're honest, those of us who work in different fields, there's one thing we have in common as a Black woman leader. The, uh, the origin of the story, it's not our permanent narrative, but the truth is most of us were meant to be the help. We were meant to be laborers, and we're talking about our ancestors. It was never intended for some of us to have PhDs and doctorates. It was never intended for us to be leaders as global businesswomen, as educators, as people in different legislative bodies, depending on what country you're in. That was never the intent. But because we are who we are, we're the cornerstone of life in the world, if we think about it. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter what identity that you're thinking about. I'm sure if you look close enough and deep enough, the impact of a black woman has led a left a legacy somewhere within that identity, if not currently. And so really want to have some candid conversations, talk about these realities, but then also bring in some experts who can share with us some things for us to think about and how we can better support each other, um, how we can better recognize each other and how we can better integrate one another in our needs. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Shante Elbert. Shante, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you've done today. Thank you so much, Coretta. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Shante Elbert. I have been in higher education for almost 15 years. This November um, gives me the pleasure of dedicating my life's work to higher education. I always tell people that I was called to this work. I didn't willingly walk into it. Um, I fell into it because I love talking about health and wellness, and I became a peer educator as an undergraduate student at East Carolina. Um, and at that institution, I got to meet some very strong women in the field who are also black women 
who really poured into me and have mentored me for decades. And, and so I decided to go into this field post-undergrad and become the graduate assistant for the Health and Nutrition Education Office. And that really was the beginning of my entire dedication to doing well-being work within higher education and college health. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I've been faculty at a variety of institutions. Um, currently, I'm an assistant professor at a couple of institutions teaching public health courses and now um, assisting those working on their doctorate by serving on their dissertation committees. And so for me, it's come full circle and really pouring back into the generations that will follow and teaching them about what it means to be a practitioner scholar. And so it has been so beneficial to be able to really create my own path because there wasn't a path for me to follow. Um, but I was very blessed to have a circle of mentors who saw a lot of greatness and good inside of me well before I saw it, especially as a first generation student. And now being able to do this same work and pour back into those within higher education is my life's work. And this is also my, as I call it, this is my ministry. This is what I get to do day in, day out and see those moments where students who didn't see it in themselves and be that same support person and that same mentor um, an aspirational person for the students that are currently at the institutions that I've worked at and currently serve at um, here, um, especially since I'm in the Pacific Northwest and there's not that many people of color over here in this sector. So it's just a blessing to be to do this work. Um, and I do it from a place of wholeness, of seeing, if, of seeing students and my peers and colleagues as whole people. I see you for every identity that you decide to show up as. Um, which is a little bit different, especially because in the South, certain identities aren't always welcomed. And so doing this work, I'm constantly reminding people to be as authentic as possible and to live, them, live their identities out loud. And they are welcomed in every spaces, um, every space that I'm in. And so to make sure I create those spaces at the institutions that I work at. So that's just a little bit about me. Thank you for that, Shantae. And again, we'll talk about some of the areas that you can grow on and continue to expand on as a Black woman and leader, specifically about mentorship and sponsorship. Shantae and I talk about this a lot. Um, but I want to get into some basics before we get into some candid stories. Shantae, can you go a little bit deeper about the dimensions of wellness, what they are, and like how to know that or recognize those different dimensions? Absolutely. And I think depending on the campus that you're at, um, some campuses have six dimensions, some campuses all have up to nine dimensions, but I will kind of cover at least the ones that I consider to be um, the most popular ones, with the most common one being somewhere between emotional or mental wellness, which covers that behavioral um, component of how we deal with emotions and our mental well-being. And then most campuses have some type of financial wellness um, component because the goal is to also empower students to be mindful of how they engage in educating students when it comes to those, um, how they take in student loans, how they um, balance the budget. You know, a lot of institutions no longer have basic financial management courses. And so a lot of institutions are starting to come back full circle and look at those dimensions of wellness um, from a financial wellness. As it is our ethical duty to teach students how to do the basics when it comes to budgeting. Um, outside of that, some also have career or occupational um, wellness as um, a dimension 
with focuses on outside of the, the classroom on how we develop students and prepare them to engage in their career choices. Um, and for many, it can be working within the career center um, or outside of their career center if they don't have one. And so that can be another dimension of wellness. A lot of campuses also have intellectual, intellectual wellness. And that is, a lot of people confuse that with how smart you are and intellectual wellness has nothing to do with how smart you are. It's how you um, engage in lifelong learning and challenge yourself to think outside your norm and to learn new things. It can be as simple as you know learning how to do um, a different type of jigsaw puzzle, going from a 2D to 3D puzzle. Um, so it can be something as simple as um, sharing your abilities with others and challenging yourself mentally. Um, to do something different. So um, that is another dimension. Physical wellness, which is probably the most common one at pretty much every campus that embraces these dimensions. Physical wellness covers, at least in higher education, how we take care of our bodies and try to aim for optimal health. And that includes physical activity, nutrition, sleep wellness. Um, and it really also incorporates um, how we approach risk that can be um, through behavior modification, so that can be sexual health, alcohol, drugs, um, interpersonal violence, those type of things. The other type of dimensions that can also be at other campuses that can vary um, are environmental wellness, and a lot of people get this um, confused to just focus on the recycle. And environmental wellness is not just about the recycle and sustainability, but it's really about the environment and how we respect the environment, but also how we set the tone for what we allow around us. Um, and so for many of us, it could be something as simple as um, what engages our senses and makes us comfortable when we're studying for our finals or studying for tests. Um, and it can be something as what type of lighting um, can be helpful. Some people can't do direct lights that it gives them a headache. Some can't do certain smells. And so making sure the environment is conducive and safe um, and so it's, it's not just about sustainability, but it's also about safety. And then the, um, the last one, that I, the last two that I covered, depending on the campus, um, are is cultural wellness and spiritual wellness. Um, and cultural wellness at some campuses is around diversity, equity, inclusion, multiculturalism, um, and respecting different backgrounds and identities, um, sexual orientation. And depending on how the campus embraces DEI, can be how they approach cultural wellness, and if they even have this as a dimension. And then spiritual wellness is one that many campuses don't even include because they confuse it for religion. But spiritual wellness is looking at a way to explore your purpose um, and your, your meaning of life and why you want to contribute to the peace and well-being of others. And so for a lot of people, spiritual wellness can include their faith in a higher power, but for many others, it, it, it doesn't have to include um, a, a, some type of standardized religion or popularized religion or a faith-based organization. And so those are the nine dimensions that are um, most commonly used. And again, you'll see variations from just picking five of those um, all the way up to all nine or combining them. I've seen um, social, cultural, and so they'll combine social and cultural into one dimension. Um, and so it just really depends on the campus. And so I approach the dimensions of wellness from a place of it is easy to talk to my colleagues that, are, that don't work in public health or college health 
on how to embrace well-being in their day-to-day, in their settings on campus. Um, it's easy to say, how do you embrace these dimensions when you're teaching your courses, when you're building curricula, um, when you're engaging in whatever you do, whether you're working in housing or whether you're working in sustainability or if you're working as a groundskeeper, how do you take these dimensions and embrace it and are mindful of this in your work as you work with a variety of students on our campus? And do you see people as whole people? You know, these dimensions remind us that we have different dimensions to who we are. We're layered individuals. And so when we do one-offs in higher education and one-dimensional approaches and they're not effective, this is one of the reasons why. Because we only approach the, approach the situation or the, the, the problem from one, um, from one area and forgot that students are multidimensional beings. And so what we often see is what is at the surface. So just like at your coffee, whatever bubbled up to the surface or whatever cream is up, up at the top of the coffee or the, the hot cocoa and you can scrape it off, that's what we tend to see with students. And so a lot of the times when we do this work, um, a lot of us who do it um, call it root work, of getting to the root of the problem. And the dimensions of wellness levels the playing field, whether you're a practitioner or not, of saying, let's look at the whole student and how we want to engage with them and how we want to make sure that, that we, we not we not only recruit them here, um, but we retain them here. So how do we look at these dimensions across the campus and build it into the framework and build up, as we call it, a culture of well-being? From the time we recruit them to the time they graduate, how will we approach them from these dimensions? So that's just a brief overview of those nine dimensions of wellness. Thank you, Shante. And you said some really crucial keywords in there. Um, You talk about those of us who do the root work, who get below the surface, who get to the core of what's going on. But then you also mentioned the retention and you talked about it from the student lens. But I want us to um, pivot and I want us to think about from the employee lens specifically. What is some of the root work we need to be doing in these professions? Doesn't matter if it's in education or outside of education. As a black identified woman leader, what is missing and what's available in terms of the root work needed to keep black women identified folks advancing in positions of leadership or just the idea of leadership in general for those who need a, a clearer definition of leadership? Leadership is literally the act of influencing other people for a greater outcome. And so whether you are in a position formally to do it or informally working through your work, your networks, the things that you contribute to, there's leadership that's following, meaning you're supporting, there's leadership that you're in a position, or there's the idea of leadership by way of influencing. But back to the question, Shante, what is the root work that's missing or available to retain Black women identify leaders? I think some of the root work that is missing starts with not viewing um, Black women as aggressive um, when we are passionate and purposeful with the work that we do. Um, Giving us space in um, certain areas. And and I think that is probably one of the most um, necessary conversations we need to have. First of all, is just identifying the biases that we, we put on to Black women. You know, some Black women are told that they can't wear their natural hair in the workspace. They are told that they can't dress a certain way. And so to, to not only recruit us, is to also welcome how we want to engage the spaces that we 
that we are in. And so um, I think it's uh, hypocritical to recruit us and then to limit how we engage in these spaces. And, you know, a lot of other colleagues that are not um, black or brown or people of color or indigenous um, don't have to worry about how they wear their hair. Should they wear that Black Lives Matter t-shirt? Can they wear any type of African print attire? Um, what would their colleagues think? Um, you know, it's always multiple thought processes and how we decide to go into our spaces of employment and how we engage in those spaces. And, you know, it is challenging and it's also exhausting. And so, you know, the first thing is to just not recruit us, but to welcome all aspects of who we are and then provide the spaces for us to go into there. Um, you know, a lot of times when I talk to peers who are, whether entry-level or high up in the org chart in an administrative role, we often talk about um, being the only. And it's very lonely at the top. Um, I've done quite a few presentations, it's lonely at the top. And what it, what it means to be the only person, and it often recruited to be the voice for all at your institution. And I can't speak for every black woman at my institution, um, but at times I am the voice for all the black women at my institution. And so it, it makes me have to think twice as hard on how I engage in certain spaces because how well or how badly um, they perceive me to do it will determine if other black women get the chance to, to come into some of those sacred, and I use sacred in parentheses, spaces of administration. Um, and then last but not least is allyship beyond um, lip service and to sponsorship. It's one thing to say, we really support you all. We really see the great things that you do. Um, but when I talk to colleagues of color and I ask them, how many, how many of you all have had the chance to move up internally and got that nice tap on the shoulder, not many of us have had the chance to move up internally. Majority of us that I've talking um, have a chance to talk to have had to apply for every position. And so when we are having to work twice as hard to get to the table and apply for every position and often overlook, it makes it a lot challenging um, as we engage in a variety of spaces because we know those spaces weren't, weren't created for us. Um, and so those are some of the things that um, can be challenging. And one, one, um, one day early this week, I, I talked a lot about um, how we as um, black women, specifically people of color, often um, have these natural gifts and abilities. And because of the exhaustion um, of having to constantly prove ourselves or being told that it's not good enough, we stop functioning in, that, that in, in those gifts. Um, but those gifts are innate to us and, and to, to not do them um, consistently is to water them down and dilute them. And it, that can be even um, more impactful um, in the long run to groups of students and peers when we get to show up whole. Um, and that can be challenging. And then another thing I talked about um, this week, and I actually made a Facebook post about it, and I talked about um, being at the table. And oftentimes when we don't get to be at the table and having to create our own spaces, um, and the quote talks about, um, it's not just about being invited to the table, but when you're, when you're situated in your gift, um, no matter where you are, whether you're standing in that space or whether you're, um, welcome to that space openly and willingly, the gift will make room for you. And, the, and you will be 
the, the, and basically saying that the, the tables will shift um, for you. And it won't always feel, it won't always feel that it was uh, naturally made for you to be there at that table. But that, those are some of the things that I've been able to, to talk about over the past couple of um, past couple of weeks when it comes to having to constantly make our own tables, build our own tables, or just downright show up and demand space at these tables. And the exhaustion that comes with it is not always um, seen by our peers. Um, and when we show up and have to constantly be on a ten, it can definitely um, be exhausting. And so uh, the quote said, when you operate in your gift, you don't have to be at the head of the table. For wherever you sit or stand, the table will shift. Um, and that has been my mantra for 2020 of, you know, doing this work for so long and constantly being overlooked and trying to get to the table. And now if that's not the purpose of, of why I do what I do, of just being comfortable where I'm at and seeing the table shift to me. Um, and that is what I have had to shift my thinking to and many of my peers have had to shift our thinking to because we've had to fight just to be at the table and it's a it the, the table is unreachable it's not a glass ceiling like it is for our white colleagues especially white women it is a concrete ceiling and all of my research for my dissertation showed that it is impenetrable you can't even see through it you can't see around it and so we, we have to approach leadership from a very different um aspect and we, it is, it's, a, it's a daunting task. And so when we don't have mentors and uh, allies and sponsors, it can, it can really dilute the field where we just walk away, not because we don't want to do the work, but really because we're just exhausted from trying. Shante, that is so true. Um, you hit so many key points. And I actually took some notes because there's some things I want to pull apart for us to expand on just a little bit. Um, so bear with me. One of the key areas I want to start on is the employment piece. You're bringing us to the table. Um, I think there is a quote, and it may be in the Bible, but it says you, you perish for a lack of vision. I think all the bias and the nuances you just described, it's symptomatic of institutions and our cultural and our society not having visions for what people and institutions and organizations want. If you know what you want, you have a big overarching picture of this is what I want my company to feel like, look like, sound like, here's the words that'll be used, here's the feelings or the experiences people will have. When you have that together, then you can map out who needs to be at the table, what skill sets, what competencies, what thing? What other um, nuances or experiences do they bring to the table? And as a result of those experiences, our stakeholders will have this experience to the right. That's what it looks like when you have a vision. But we know a lot of times that we've worked at some places together and apart that didn't have those visions. And when you don't have those visions, let me tell you from my perspective how the employment process ends up bringing us in heavily recruited and then within three to five years, look at your HR numbers. I don't care what profession you work at. Look at African-American women or black women or women of color as a whole and look at those turnover rates. And I can tell you some of the examples of why. When we come to interview, sometimes you've got the wrong panel of people 
at the table. And here's what I mean by wrong panel of people. You may have people who are overrepresented and tokenized. So when I went to my first institution here in the Midwest, I didn't realize how frequent uh, Shantae's point about uh, being the representative for a whole identity. My supervisor was hypersensitive to it. We actually got into not a spat, but it was like our first moment of tension because within my first week of being at the institution, somebody um, who identifies as a queer ally had tapped me. We had good vibes, had a good conversation. Shantae knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and they asked me, they're looking for a director's search um, for their LGBTQ center. And she's looking for some people who would be intentional, who have done some work for the community, uh, in the local community, but as well as on campus for students and who would have that good judge of character about who can do the work and then who's just talking about the work. And those of us who've been in any field long enough know you've got star performers who will come in there, wow you like a great sermon or a good orator and can't do a lick of work and ain't interested in doing a lick of work. They're interested in wowing your socks off, getting your benefit package and having another notch on their belt with either a nice title or nice office benefits or your institutional's name on their resume, right? And so what happens when you select the wrong group of people, they look for those persons and they weed out a lot of potential. And then, you know, I was talking about being overrepresented. I knew this person was intentionally recruiting me to represent, but my boss had watched so many people who were on his staff before I got there because of their identities. They're on five and 10 search committees. And he was at a wall as a white ally being frustrated. Like I just hired this employee. This, you know, person in another department, did you want to let me know that you were recruiting my person? So and within a frame, he was right. But then there was also the piece we had to navigate of, oh, you hired me for my my ability. I need you to trust that I know when I'm being tokenized, not tokenized. So nuances. But to my point, you can't keep putting the same five or seven people out of a division or department on all your searches when you're trying to have some type of multicultural effect. That in itself is problematic. And then two, at what point are you fatiguing the people that you're having to overrepresent? And then three, it's just disgusting. So that's like point one on the employment part. Point two, going back to the who you bring to the table. At the same institution, I also sat on searches and Shantae, you can attest and jump in wherever you want to. People who are worried about the wrong thing at the wrong time. That's where bias comes in. I remember the same search I was on for the director of the LGBTQ center. I'm doing resume critiques with, with the different people I'm around the table with. Two thirds of us are focused on the right thing. The other third were two individuals, white identified women, one obsessed about grammar, the other obsessed about format of a resume. We're not even talking about the interview. We're talking about the resume. And I had to be the person. And when I say had to be, this is my conviction. I pushed back so hard because this isn't about who was selected and wasn't selected based on race. But so many times this, and I'm going to call it nitpicking, but the word is pedigree. It's the same pedigree where, and I know if you are a marginalized population, you have experienced this certain institutions are more revered because of pedigree 
on your resume? Are certain activities or extracurriculars as a professional are revered as a pedigree? It's a way to reinforce sameness or elitism, if we're honest. And it's all yep. rooted in system, systemic oppression and racism. Because I'm at the table and I'm having to say to these people, we've got students on this campus who are suicidal because of their identities and they don't have safe spaces outside of campus. And you want to worry about a grammar piece and a cover letter that you can ask about in a, in a visual interview or a phone interview, or you're worried about format of a resume when we're looking for the best possible candidate who can come into this job and we can prep them on if there's different education systems. We don't know what happened with this person. We don't know if this is a fluke or moment in time. They're excited. It could be a million things, but we have folks who are so dramatically worried, not about the qualifications. And some would say, well, Coretta, for education, like grammar matters and format, those things matter, but you can train those things. You can coach those things. Those should not be deal breakers unless you are working in- The pipeline is broken. That part. And that's why I'm talking about it. You no, know, as a latchkey kid, where was the money for the tutors? There wasn't any. Well, My mom had us at, in, in high school, and so there was no extra. Or talk so about the to, or talk about the different see, education systems. And that's why I said everybody's education ain't the same. We got a country, and so for those that are international friends, you can kick back, put your feet up, and laugh. But in America, none of the 51 states in the two or three uh, territories have the same education standards. But yet we look at resumes and cover letters and we critique as if you should be the creme de la creme. Okay. All right. Welcome back, listeners. Um, as you can tell, this conversation is heating up to be something great, as I already knew. Uh, we're going to pick up with Shantae's comment about pipeline. So for those who are clicking in or joining in, if you are listening out of order of the segment, segment one, we did an introductory of who Shantae is, her work, um, the dimensions of wellness, the root work of retaining Black women identified leaders. But then the conversation as we started talking about the simple biases of employment and retention it didn't take long before we had to dive into the pipeline. And that's the getting candidates, viable candidates through the system to the right positions. So Shantae, I interrupted a little bit. You have my apologies on that. I'm going to hang back. Walk us through what you mean by the pipeline. The pipeline is literally from what we know in K-12, pre-K to high school. And it's, it's the access. And you look at the, the type of teachers recruited to those schools, whether they're um, uh, in the suburban or urban areas, and you look at whether they're Title III schools, and, and, and based off how they do on standardized testing is how they're funded. And so if they don't have teachers who are invested in the students, the students don't do well on standardized testing, and the, the school doesn't overall get money. And so the pipeline is jacked because it is a, a skewed process of how schools are su supported. But we do know, again, going back to the pipeline, that standardized testing doesn't measure intellectual capability and ability. And so when you have these structures in place, 
that start to put us in position on how we will be identified for 12 years, 13 if we do pre-K, that are set against specific populations of students, low SES, students of color, um, single home students, homeless students. When you start putting these things in place and you start um, labeling these students, and then by the time that we get them in high, from high school to college, you talk about imposter syndrome, that is the least of our worries. They don't have identities. And so, you know, a lot of times in higher education and student affairs, it's identity development, um, and then you can go down the line from there. But it's really hard when for 12, 13 years, they, they were no longer able to identify um, who they are, where they are, because they were labeled for, for 12, 13 years. Then they show up in their professional world, um, and they're told that that is not good enough. And they have to put on a mask. Um, then you, you start getting into respectability politics, that we have to show up as whitewashed versions of ourselves. And the masking is so exhausting. And so we never get to show up wholly and fully and authentically as ourselves. And then you wonder why you don't really get to meet people. Because even the interview process is a show. We are performing for people and giving them what they want to see. And then we wonder why when we hire people, they really can't do the job. I can perform. Some people are natural actors and actresses. And so the whole process is it's a pipeline issue, and we haven't corrected it from pre-K all the way to how we have our hiring practices. And so, yeah, if I can, if I can sell a, as we say, if I can sell water to a well, then I can get this job. I mean, I can't do this job. If I know the right people, if I have the right attire as, as a black woman, if I talk good enough, and I still don't know what that means. Um, so those are some of the things that impact the trajectories of of women, um, black women specifically, people of color. Um, and so those are things that when I talk about the pipeline issue, no matter where you intersect into the pipeline, it is skewed. And unless you find ways to interject and to shift that narrative and downright break down that pipeline and the barriers in that pipeline, we will continue to have these conversations for generations. And part of the work, because we all know change is slow. And it's slow because you're turning, um, it's almost like turning a Norwegian cruise line in the middle of a pond. Yep. You're yep. turning a system, a culture, all that within a combined area, location, institution, however you want to say it. But the reason why I, and Chante, thank you for elaborating, because it is a pipeline issue. But you got to start somewhere, businesses, employers, and that starting somewhere, you have, when you have these experiences of these job searches, start having people provide feedback about being on the search team. Because if you do it, it's not going to always give you feedback like some of the things Shantae is saying or that I've mentioned um, sitting in on a search and people are being critiqued about things that will inhibit getting the right people to the, the the table. And we're not talking about lowering standards. What we're saying is the things that can be coached and trained, coach and trained. The things that are non-negotiable and we need this person to come in with this bandwidth mm -hmm. of skills, we can't get those people in if we got the wrong people at the table being gatekeepers and blocking greatness. Because there's some people who are, like Shantae said, are in eight 
That means it comes to them natural. It is a gift. And they're being prevented from doing this work or they end up advancing beyond slow, which impedes them from making adequate pay. You have to take entry-level position and laterals when you should be advancing upward, but you can't because you don't know about the invisible gatekeepers who are looking at small nuances that are trainable. And that's the systemic piece of it. Um, or you've got the wrong... Can you, can okay. you mention where the fake searches, the searches that oh. are posted on Indeed and hire me a job that are not real searches? I mean, it, it, it is... You know, you you know, it's not like these um, these hiring uh, processes are easy. Where I just submit a couple of the resume and references, but the the online application system can take you anywhere from thirty minutes to an hour to fill out, only for you to find out there's an internal candidate and this is a fake search. Woo. When all these people have to do is just, and some institutions won't let you. But if you, and I know we say institution because we both work in education, but for institution, replace and think your employer or your business or your corporation or your own business if you run a business or your nonprofit, whatever it is, or um, branch, depending on what you do. If you have the ability to appoint or elect, do it. Because that person who's at home who's really looking maybe for this expertise, I need this competency and this job will allow me to do it. Or I've always wanted to work at this type of, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. This is my shot. Do you know how deflating it is to put that energy? And I'm going to pause, a little triple pause. HRs of the world. You know, the, my favorite HR is the ones that don't ask for redundancies. You know you don't need this information, don't ask for it. If there's a way where this person, you're just going to look at the resume, then find a way to pull the demographics, not the, ooh, we'll pull from your resume. Because your thing that pulls from the resume does a horrible job. And you end up having to redo all those fields anyway. If you don't yep. need high, if your job requires a bachelor's degree, don't ask about the high school. If they got a bachelor's degree, they couldn't go gone to college without some type of uh, high school equivalency. You got that already. Move on. Be succinct. I love it when the the the, the HR uh, application only asks for me to upload a couple of documents, do maybe a page of fields and do some demographics and I'm done, meaning I can apply in 10 minutes or less. Isn't that so efficient? But it also lets me know you're effective. You know what you want. You have a vision and you have the behind the scenes mechanisms so that you're not wasting my time. People looking for jobs, start looking at that. When people need a whole life script, Maybe you need to step back and understand that's a representative of that company, institution, branch, or whatever you're dealing with. That's one thing. But going back to the triple pauses and things, yeah, the fake searches, can we start with those? And I know some institutions you have to post. I did not learn this until I became a middle manager, people of the world. If the job posts for less than two weeks, it's probably already given to somebody. Yep. Now, sometimes people will play the game of, I know this is a hot job and I know people are going to jump on it. Sometimes, and it's only like 5% of the time, people will put it on for a week because they only want people paying attention, the top applicants, and they know it's almost like supply and demand. But that's usually less than 5% of the time. 95% of the time, that job's open for one week, they already know who they want. And it's a hard lesson because I know I've been on the other end of thinking, oh, my God, this is an amazing job. 
I'm gonna put in for it and no. And then the the third pause, um, and I know Shantae's experience this. I have a beloved colleague who is in South Carolina. Um, she was definitely a gatekeeper for me. Um, she supported our executive leadership when I was at this institution. And I can't tell you, she pitched so much for me and my other colleague at that institution. When I say pitched, when she saw things about to like go into chaotic or could be misunderstood or misconstrued, she played gatekeeper. She advocated. She asked clarifying questions of stakeholders who were calling in and may have been disgruntled. Um, she managed our executive leaders who may have looked at something skewed and helped them refocus or said, let me be the middle person. You go do your thing. I'll connect with Coretta and other people and I will make sure we have what we need. That's a gatekeeper. But she always said, because she, when she got to know me, she was like, you were so passionate. And all my supervisors will tell you, I'm passionate. I love people. I love the work. And my personal mission is to see every person I come in contact enhance their quality of life. So based on that, when I apply for a job, I'm applying as a whole person, as Shantae said in segment one. I'm showing up as my whole self, ready to work with other people and help them find their whole selves. I'm not going to do it for you, but I want you to realize that and materialize that. But some of these jobs don't want that. Some of these jobs really just want a token. I want to look good. I want to say in a report, we do this. And that's what I'm hiring for. And if you don't go in with your eyes open and your ears perched, You'll end because I've done this several times. And her new name, new thing for me is if I tell her about a job, she says, Retta, do they want the person to do their job? Or do they want to say we have somebody to do the job? And she does that. She does that for my and, and why I'm gonna bring it up and I'm turning over to you, Shantae. She does that for my wellness. She does that because she knows my mental health journey is real. It has always been real and will be real. And she cares about me as a sister and as a woman of color. And she doesn't like to see me expend energy into roles where people never wanted success. And that is exhaustion. And that sometimes happens to us women identified leaders. We get put in positions where we were meant to be quid pro quo and token. And we showed up on a job, willing to do the job, only to have to fight upstream the whole time because nobody ever really wanted results. Shantae, you got it. The upstream battle. I mean, upstream is a public health term um, that we use in public health because the goal is to go upstream and prevent things from happening. And to, to go upstream and prevent things from happening requires us to change systems. Um, and do and what we, again, in public health, we call it a systems approach. A lot of us use the social ecological model, which starts with policy and goes all the way down to the bottom of that uh, model, which goes on the individual level, so peer-to-peer or person-to-person. Um, and so these are approaches that we do in public health that are very applicable in higher education. Um, but I want to pick on a piece, Corinne, and I know we've, we've talked about this before, um, and I actually had um, uh, a woman of color doing an interview process um, who was in the, in the top position at her institution or campus president, um, during the interview process, um, look at my resume and ask me, why did I job hop? Mm. And it was a gut punch. Mm -hmm. And to, to, to not be defensive was my goal. But it, it, it's hard when you apply for a job and you're overlooked, not because you didn't 
have the skill sets, but because a coworker said I wouldn't want to work for Shantae, and said coworker showed up and barely did their job, was lazy, unprofessional, and it was documented. But mm-hmm. because said coworker had longevity uh, and was also um, popular, I didn't get an interview. And so I, and my response was, if you look at my resume, you would notice that every job that I've went to since I left my first institution was a promotion. I didn't take a lateral move. It was a promotion, not only in title, but in salary. And I said, while I would have loved to stay in my home state of North Carolina, I wasn't given the opportunity. And it's, it's hard when, as a black woman, the opportunities that I've had have been at institutions that required me to leave my comfort zone of the South of North Carolina. But to be on an interview and for a black woman, obviously in a different generation, who didn't believe in job hopping, because eventually I read an article where they said they didn't believe in it, um, to question me. And knowing the pipeline issues that we have in higher education, um, and to pull it out in the interview process, it was hurtful. Um, I think it was more hurtful than anything. Um, and then I had to respond to that. And, I, and, and it, was, it was just the most off-putting experience I've ever had. Um, and I remember the hiring manager, as I wrapped up the interview day, I told them, I was like, this started off my interview. And it shifted how I approached everything else for the rest of the day. And I said, I think you all should really be mindful of the type of questions you ask people. You don't know why people left positions. But to imply that people are job hopping without getting context is rude and disrespectful, especially when you're coming and approaching it to marginalized populations when we know oftentimes we don't get opportunities for upward mobility internally. And, and that has probably been the biggest issue I've had um, in, this, in this sector of higher education of people looking at, you know, those of us who are millennials and younger as job popping when, no, it's funny that I popped for said job at my institution, didn't get it, but said job at another institution, I got it. What does that say? And so those are some of the things that not just me, but many of my peers have, we have talked about and cried about and don't understand, but it is, it's just daunting. Um, and, and, and at times, there's just no words to, to understand and, and to really try to put it into words at times is just unreal because I don't hear these same type of conversations from my white colleagues that I'm good friends with. Oh, and to that point, Shantae, I've got a couple of things. One, I'm thinking about one of my white colleagues who he had made several moves. So he moved from Tennessee to Mississippi And then a year later, he moved back to our home alma mater. And then after that, he moved down to Miami to find out Miami was not a cup of tea for he and his partner. And then took another position somewhere else in the South. Or I may have gotten a Mississippi wrong. I think he went from Tennessee to Georgia to Florida and then to Mississippi. I bring that up because I know this person. Great skills. Amazing person. But I know as a white identified cisgender male, he was allowed, I'm pretty sure, and I bet if I pull him on here and ask him, 
Somebody asked him about why he was job hunting or job hopping. He wasn't job hopping. He went to environments and either the job wasn't what he thought it was, so he moved. There was trade-offs he wasn't willing to deal with, so he moved. The environment, like you said, there's environmental factors. I know for a fact when he went to Miami, he said it is a very in-group. If you're not born and raised from there, it is really hard to adapt if you don't have a lot of roots there. And so he and his partner finally found what they were looking for in Mississippi. There's a privilege um, in being able to make those moves but not sit during the interview process and have somebody ask you, why are you hopping around? Because I've had people say that to me. And my next point is when I was in corporate America, um, one of my bosses, her name was Jennifer. And she said to me up front, she was one of the most direct white women I've ever worked for. And I appreciate her. And I'm, by the way, I'm a Gen Xer. So it's not just the millennials. It's anybody who needs to do what they need to do for themselves. I say, do it. You live one life. Living your life based on what other people say, I can tell you one thing. If you black and a woman identify a leader, you wouldn't be in your role if you listen to what everybody had to say. That's going to be one. But number two, Jennifer always told me, and I only worked for her maybe eight months best um, before she got promoted. And so she led, but she said, Coretta, when there's something that you really want to do, make sure you're networking and working to get the skills and accomplishments to go do it. And don't stay in something that's not fulfilling for you. Go do the things that are going to fuel you. And I think of another supervisor who used to say, you know, what are the things that are going to fill your cup? What are the things that's going to full fuel or fill your soul? And not everything that you're going to do is going to fit those attributes. But both of those are white identified women. The first story I told you all was a white identified male. The reality is. When black women or other marginalized populations are coming to the table, we're not being asked the same set of questions. When cisgender white men show up to the table, they're not at being asked um, about accommodations and, oh, are you going to be able to do the job if you have a family? Or is this going to be a problem because based on whatever, whatever identity piece or, oh, we see you've moved around. I've never sat in an interview where people have questioned a man's ability to move around. Seldom have I seen it happen to a white woman, but I'm going to tell you, if you're marginalized, everything is critiqued. Everything you've ever done. Basically, within your introduction, the best thing you can do is tell them your story, your narrative, and glue those pieces so you don't have to waste your time being picked apart. Even the role that I currently inhabit, I had somebody in that, uh, I guess the group, I mean, they're a colleague now, but in that group asking like, so if you get this position, will you stay longer than, like they looked at your longest experience was in your corporate. Will you stay as long as that? And I honestly looked at them and I said, I'll stay as long as my path and my assignment is called. I take jobs not for the sake of a job or not for a check. Yes, I have rent to pay, so let's not be silly. But I take responsibilities because for me, I'm on assignment. I go to roles based on spiritual direction as well as where I'm trying to go for my career. And so at this part, I've made one of my biggest goals was to become director and do something that intersects identity and leadership and growth of both student employees and professionals. So I'm living my dream. So here on out, and it's always been this, it's a spiritual journey for me. Everybody can't say that. And it's not saying that you should, but for me, that's always been my walk. 
Spiritually, I know when a job is over and it's time to go in a different direction. And I and the steps and the signs will lead me there and serendipity and all those other pieces. But when I'm sitting across from some, someone that said that, and once I got hired, somebody did mention to me, and they were like, I gained so much respect for you because I knew my colleagues shouldn't have asked you that question. That question had nothing to do with your credentials, but yet you had a very on-point answer to let them know they were wrong for asking that but you will do what's best for you. And she was like, that gave me voice for myself. And unfortunately- You just, you said the piece, this is a spiritual calling. That part. You can't, you can't rationalize- Nope. Faith and spirituality to non-believers. Nope, you can't. You know, I, I appreciate those who are agnostic and atheist, but you're trying to level the playing field and get them to understand something they one don't believe. Nope. Or understand. And so one of the things I, you know, I, and so to, to kind of level the playing field, I always say this. I say missionaries don't tell God where they're going. They, they go where they're told to go and yes. they're led. And that's, where, that's what I am. I'm a missionary. And this is my job um, in college health. But the places that I get to do this work around um, helping people to identify their gaps and, and, and breaking through trauma and, and changing systems. Um, there and identifying generations of um, isms, and I won't say curses, but I would say definitely trauma, generations of trauma that impact um, who we are and all the things that they told us we wouldn't ever be. So when I get to go into these communities and see students who are unsure of self and, and, and pour back in and help them refill their cup and downright rebuild an infrastructure where that cup is impenetrable to some degree, it is so refreshing to see not only when they do it in, 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 the, in the, the institution, but when they take it out and they pour it back into their family systems and you start seeing it go down the generation where now the baby cousins and the, the, the other family members are starting to look at it and say, wait a minute, if so-and-so can do it, I can do it. Right. And, you know, and so you, people don't understand this. And I say it's hard to explain something that is unexplainable but this is my belief system i believe that this is bigger than me right and because this is bigger than me i go where i'm led and, and every time i've done a job and i've been told to go to a place god has always put me there and it has never gone wrong and i trust the process and i say just like you want you don't want to overcook a meal you don't want to overstay your welcome and that's the easiest way i can explain it no but that's precisely it some people stay too long and, and you see it show up in how people don't want to embrace newness or new policies, new programs, new services. And you can't, and then the students are like, this campus is not progressive. They, I mean, this is, this is not what I want to go to school for. And you're begging for the basics. You're outsourcing things that shouldn't be outsourced. You're keeping things that can be tabled and you know what, Sunset, um, I mean, these are things that we see when you don't, you know, refresh, just like with any computer system, sometimes just to shut down and refresh the system is all you need. And that's what we, we don't do enough in higher ed. We let people overstay their welcome and we don't bring in and we don't refresh the thoughts and the processes. And then what happens? The students come in and shake it to its core with unrest. Mm -hmm. and demands and protest and now they're like oh my god oh my god now we need 
a chief diversity officer to come and fix this. Now we need, oh, now we have a pandemic. Now we need uh, a health and wellness person to come in and help us deal with this. You're putting band-aids on situations that are systemic. They're not going to go away. And that's what it is to do this work for us. You know, for us who work in college health and do DEI work, they put band-aids on it. And that's what our careers feel like. At any moment in time, they're going to rip the band-aid off. And that's where the exhaustion, the PTSD, the raised anxiety, um, anybody who thinks I'm, I'm pulling their leg, pull up some journal articles, pull up any association, pull up some of your psychology databases. The stats are there. They're, they're there if you want to see them. People are entering these jobs. I'm going to say black women are entering these jobs with whatever level of mental health and emotional health and psychological health that they have. And some of these jobs are literally just about to take you out. I've had jobs that I've walked clean away from to preserve my mental health. I'll let you have your title, your job, your benefits. And I'm well aware that people are going to ask you what happened. Because I am like, and this ain't too my horn, I am a star performer. I am a star employee. And it's because I'm driven by my internal, not the external. And when I walk away from you, I'm preserving me and letting you be your, your best self or your true self. And that's where I want to turn the conversation to, Shantae. At this point, we just basically named the fact that these environments aren't equipped for the people that you're asking. You're asking us to come here and you're asking us to put our sauce on it. You're asking us to model the way for what holistic care looks like, but there's no care for us. There's no equity for us. Our voices aren't heard or they're misunderstood. There's not room for clarification. There's really not a lot of room for us. But given that, Shantae, how do we find ways to self-preserve um, in these spaces? I think this is a great way to kind of wrap up all the all of that we've said. It is. I think the best way to preserve this is you you, you got to have a community. You got to have people, um, places, and things in place for um, for self care. You can't just you know they always say you can't pour, pour from an empty cup. And the same thing applies to us as professionals. And you know knowing when to step in, when to step out for self preservation is truly important. And that's what I've had to learn. Um, you know, most teams have their starting lineup and I have a starting lineup of support, whether it's family, friends, or mentors that I can call at any moment in time, whether it's, I need advice, whether I desire prayer or a combination thereof. And, and that has been so beneficial, um, for me in my career. Um, and so that is really for me, it's just having a great support system and having community and then relying on my faith. Those are, the, those are the important things for me. Pause for just a moment. 